This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 12, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In light of the events of the past week, it's at least relevant to ask, is America really all that exceptional? Historian Anthony Comegna discusses American exceptionalism of the left and of the right, and what duties an exceptional America imposes on people who want to keep it that way. There are a lot of events in the United States that are unfortunate last year, though you can applaud the protests of of police violence in the United States. A lot of cities had blocks that were just burned down by uh, angry rioters. And earlier, well, just last week, as of this recording, a group of armed uh, superfans of Donald Trump attacked the Capitol, broke in, killed a police officer, killed four of uh, three or four of their own uh, supporters uh, of the president. And I hear this phrase thrown around, this isn't who we are. And you see these, these negative events in the United States and, and frankly elsewhere in terms of the U.S. involvement around the world and, and all of the people that the U.S. military kills around the world in countries that we are not officially fighting. And at some point you have to wonder, well, maybe this is who we are. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate wonder. I'm not necessarily here to say it is who we are either, because I think it's always interesting to note that by now, the U.S. has the oldest existing constitution in the world, at least in its in its present form, um, written constitution, certainly the, the oldest, you know, so um, it, we're actually a pretty old country in terms of, you know, major changes to our institutional structure. We've only had tweaks here and there in our constitutional system for, you know, a long time now. And uh, what's the math? 200 something? 244 years. That's quite a long time. It's actually a very conservative record. And, and something that's that's really been bugging me is is hearing people on the news aghast saying things like, you know, can you imagine, could, could the founding fathers have ever imagined something like this happening? You know, and, and the point is, of course they did. They thought this would happen all the time. And that's precisely why they developed a government where Congress is clearly in charge and they're clearly supreme. The other thing that's been bugging me is this nonsense about three co-equal branches of government that have equal powers and, and privileges and protections and things like that. And they do not, they do not have equal powers. It's that's completely ridiculous. As, as Gene Healy likes to point out, if uh, Congress so willed it, uh, they could uh, give the president a secretary, put the white house up on the auction block and uh, give the president a, maybe like a, we work space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You go, go work in your own house. You know, <laughs> like everybody else right now, go work from home. Um, and that would be totally fine. They they have all all the power, essentially. Um, and as so many people have been pointing out for so many years, all these cases that constantly go to the Supreme Court could easily be decided by Congress uh, with their ability to, to change the courts and change jurisdictions on certain cases and everything else. They designed the government this way so that you could not have a tyrannical executive. And I was saying to my wife the other day, it, it's just ridiculous because this is a it, it, 
it's always been a country of legislatures, you know, going back to, to Puritan town meetings and stuff. Uh, and, and government has always built up from there, the legislatures and different layers of representation of the people. And the, the president is an unfortunate necessity. That, that's essentially how he's looked at. More than that, everyone expected, because in, in virtually every place in every time throughout world history, no executive would willingly give up their power. And most of us in this audience have probably heard this kind of thing ad nauseum about Jeff uh, Washington being so special, King George III saying he's the greatest man in history and all this stuff because he gave up power. Nope, just nobody else would have done that. And then, you know, John Adams would have a horrible, abysmal record as president if it weren't for him, you know, setting the, the example of peacefully transferring power to another party. Uh, in a horribly bitter election year of 1800. And, and you know, so they, of course, they, they, they would have imagined this. They encountered this all the time. And they literally read about nothing else in their history books. So as a related note, where does this notion of American exceptionalism, where does it have its root? Because, uh it doesn't strike me that uh, anyone at this moment ought to be able to uh, rely on uh, the history of the United States, especially history of the last week or so, to say, you know, America is an exceptional nation. Uh, is it that, like Ned Flanders once said, they're just hearkening back to a time that exists only in the minds of us Republicans? Uh, not Necessarily, I, I think there there is a certain amount of truth to the different narratives of American exceptionalism, but but it's the kind of pernicious truth that is hidden inside of a larger myth, and and it's the truthy part of the myth that that latches people in because it makes sense, and then they buy into they're committed enough to the truth that they buy into the rest of the myth, so you can see perfectly legitimate strands of this going all the way back to the Puritans. You know, I think that's a great example of they, they were actually on a project to, to make an exceptional country. You know, the question is, did they succeed in any way? Because I can tell you the rest of the, the colonies uh, it, with the possible exception of William Penn and some other new England colonies, but certainly the Atlantic and the Southern colonies, they were not trying to do anything exceptional at all. They were importing petty European feudalism and, and fiefdoms into the Americas, and they were running their colonies accordingly. Uh, but, you know, in New England, they were, that's, they were on a mission to be the city on a hill for a, a more godly world. Um, the question is, did they actually achieve that? And, you know, most people, the, the consensus generally is, and was too at the time, that the Salem witch trials really ruined all of that and exposed the fanaticism involved in, in those ideas and the unworkability of such a society. And the, gradually the younger generation became more and more, quote, enlightened toward, you know, modernity and science. But, but in, in terms of our, our actual historical narratives, the, the first historian to really hammer away on this, this idea of American exceptionalism and blow it up into into a huge motivating political force was uh, George Bancroft, for whom the, the Bancroft Prize is named. Uh, he was America's first professional historian in the sense that he had proper European degrees. Um, 
and and he he was more meticulous in his methods than earlier more uh, oral historians were um and bancroft had this almost you know religious notion in mind as many jacksonians uh, of his day did in the 1820s 30s 40s uh, while his volumes were coming out and being celebrated and read, um, they had this notion that, you know, manifest destiny was real, that the Puritans mission was right headed, uh, and that it was sort of on course toward fulfillment, thanks to the success of the revolution. And the great thing about our country is that we managed to, uh, escape European history and all of the pitfalls and tyrannies and death and destruction and you know, wars internal and external that go along with being part of the old world. We've got a fresh new start in a fresh new world, specially uh, prepared for us by divine providence. And um, the only limitations are essentially our own corruption. Whoa, 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 whoa. What was that? What was that about our own corruption? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he thought, it, he thought everything was fine because they had they had Andrew Jackson in their corner and he was going to charge in on horseback and protect them from. Well, if you've got Andrew Jackson, I'm sure everything will work out just fine. Uh, so, well, where do we get the, the I mean, when I when I hear American exceptionalism invoked as a term and sort of a yearning for uh, some mythical time past uh, in the United States, I hear that mostly from the right. Yeah. So what about the, the American exceptionalism of the left? The, the left has a different variant of this because uh, at least the mainstream left, let's say, you know, I think for the most part, your radical libertarians don't accept American exceptionalism. Neither do your radical left wing people, um, because both of those factions have a keen eye on power and they know that, you know, power can jump across oceans pretty easily. Um so we've never been free from feudalism. We've never been free from, from class struggles like Europe. We've never been free from, you know, tyranny. Um, and we've never had a, a pure or clean democracy, nothing close to it. You know, still, most people don't vote. Um, but the, the left-wing variant accepts a lot of the mythology of American history, its essential goodness, its escape from old world institutions, they accept the idea that democracy is good and that republicanism is good. Our constitutional order is good. And that gradual, the, the blessing of America to the left-wing variant here is that we have given the world an opportunity to get better and better and better bit by bit, more and more democratic. This is the old Gordon Wood narrative of, of American history that the great thing about it is that it, it is, is such that more and more people can over time be incorporated into the body politic and create a more and more equal and peaceful and democratic society. Well, uh, I don't think that experiment has really proven um, its merits. I don't think it's actually true either. That's not really how things work. And it's a problem to buy into either one of these narratives. The, the right wing manifest destinarian version thinks that whatever, you know, might makes right, whatever we do is good because we're blessed and we have the, the mission of, of world history behind us here. But the left-wing variant risks, you know, uh, making a fairy tale out of American history and using pivot points like this to say, see, now we're getting really serious about 
Um, we've got two black senators in Georgia and we're taking white supremacist terrorist threats seriously. And, you know, we're going to start treating, um, white and black criminals more equally now. And with, you know, um, it's often said, uh, I forget who, who said it originally that racism is not just simple hatred for others. It's greater preferences for some and skepticism of others, something to that effect. And maybe we'll see those scales balance now. And people won't be naturally skeptical of non-white Americans. They'll be just as skeptical of, you know, white Americans too. I don't, there, there, there's a risk of being way too Pollyanna about that and uh, thinking that because you've been told that's how American history has worked, that that's just true. It's really not. And, um, you know, I think a good example of that is that Congress hasn't increased its numbers since the 1920s. So proportionately way, way fewer people are actually represented today than were even back then. When I hear about American exceptionalism and it's it's always it's at this point sort of just a throwaway uh, notion. I, I can remember Rand Paul uh, when 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 he became a U.S. senator uh, talked about American exceptionalism and said this is it is not inevitable that the United States is exceptional, that there are duties uh, that one must perform in order to maintain whatever idea you have of how the United States is or ought to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And it's interesting. I was thinking, um, I've been on the show here before to talk about the door war and anybody who's listened to enough of my old shows for Liberty Chronicles at libertarianism.org has heard a lot about the door war in Rhode Island, this weird affair in 1841, 42, Essentially, a, a ragtag group of, of political reformists tried to take over the state government, hold their own constitutional convention spontaneously, like the revolutionary state governments did, and put in a, a new government, because their old one hadn't changed since King Charles II issued it in the 1660s. They said, enough is enough with this thing. Most of us can't even vote anymore. So we, we need to lead a little revolution here and, and put this government out. They tried to use this time-tested American political method of a, a constitutional convention, right? But the old state government wouldn't, wouldn't leave. And so there was a military standoff and these Dorite warriors, so-called for their leader, Thomas Wilson Dorr, who they elected governor of this proposed new government, they were training cannons on the state arsenal in Providence. His, his own father and brother, who were staunch opponents of this whole movement, they were inside the arsenal looking back at him, uh, training cannons on him. So you've got this standoff of two armies in Providence. And, um, you know, people were really scared. They were really, really worried that this would be civil war bursting throughout New England. I remember seeing headlines like that. Civil war about to burst through New England. And... Uh, as soon as the first shots were fired, Dora's army essentially ran away. They scattered and ran away because turns out they were all young men hoping to impress girls in the village. You know, there are there are very few other instances that come close to something really on this scale and, and level of, you know, possible or perceived danger. Um, could have been obviously way, way, way worse than it was. It's not entirely unheard of. Um, but, you know, this is I think these are the kinds of moments that peek through and show us that we've been living in a mythological haze. And maybe it's gotten us kind of far by now. But the, the cracks are apparent 
And, you know, the, the conflict can't forever be avoided. It can't forever be pushed off and do what, what Congress loves doing so much, shoving their powers, their legitimate powers and authority onto the president or the bureaucracy or kicking it everything to the courts. They can't continue to do that. I've seen some members of Congress, of course, rightfully condemning this awful violence and death uh, at the Capitol. Uh, but some Republican members have said, but now uh, we want to make sure that Nancy Pelosi and others don't use these events to settle political scores. And we need to lower the temperature on on all of this. And I thought, well, look, buddy, you signed up for a job. And sometimes the job is really hard. And sometimes you have to do things that will effectively end your political career, at least occasionally, maybe once. <laughs> but it, it, it just seems very odd. You talk about this, this fight uh, or this, this conflict that uh, seems to be continued to be pushed off. And um, it, it seems as if there's a, this large effort to push this conflict off as well. That we don't need to deal with this right now. Uh, and if Congress is not going to deal with an attack on the building in which they work, I, 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 I'm just agog at, at, at trying to imagine what would qualify as something uh, that members of Congress think they need to deal with. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the thing. That, that's why, like I said earlier, you know, radical libertarians don't really buy into this exceptionalism talk because we understand that as long as you have a political system, as long as you have uh, divergent and differing amounts of power in society and some people willing to use their power over others, you're always going to have conflict. And the more you have institutions that can generalize and socialize that conflict, the more you're going to have it. So you have to devolve and ultimately abolish those institutions uh, before you can dissolve and, and abolish social conflict. Um, we've always had political systems where even if we supposedly govern ourselves and govern each other, then we still have uh, an entrenched ruling political class, for example. That's what we have. We don't, we don't have a feudal class of landlords, at least not anymore. It took a while to, uh, the, those systems, like I said, were in place, but, but eventually they were dissolved. And we just replace every feudal landlord with, with you know, politi political landlords, essentially, um, and who exercise claims over our, our uh, incomes instead of rents. And the left-wing uh, folks understand that you can't get rid of conflict because this is what Marx was always talking about. This is how society works, how history is driven on and on and on. Um, and you can't, you can't, just because you, you might... Uh, uh, start in the middle of the process in a new place doesn't mean you have somehow changed or escaped the process itself. So they've always thought this is a bunch of, of falsehoods and lies too. Basically, they say to keep people complacent with American industrial capitalism, to, to keep them thinking they'll be members of the wealthy, work, uh, wealthy class someday too, and they won't. Um, and libertarians... We understand the government just wants us to kind of uh, keep paying into the system and keep voting them into office. Yeah. And there's this uh, idea that you sort of alluded to that uh, by arriving in a new place, people thought 
we're, we're going to do things differently this time. And that is a famous last words, I suppose. We're going to we're going to do we're going to get it right this time. But, you know, ultimately institutions are run by people and people are flawed and people in groups are flawed in sometimes predictable ways. Uh, and and so I I don't see any value to the notion of uh, American exceptionalism, especially in light of the last couple of weeks. No, and you know, it, it, rejecting American exceptionalism is not embracing the conflict. It's recognizing that we all do have conflicting interests that have to be managed. There are good ways of doing it and there are bad ways of doing it, but we don't want to kid ourselves into thinking that everything is, is you know, fine with the right people in charge or with the right uh, uh, faith in, in institutions and ideas or with the right adherence to the founder's vision or something, then, you know, everything will be great. As long as we follow a government of God, the world will be put right. Uh, you know, that's th those kinds of falsehoods and mythologies can be really dangerous and misleading to people. And it's not a problem to recognize that we have conflicting interests. Um, and maybe if we recognize that, we'll stop trying to interfere so much in one another's lives. And we'll start finding ways to actually govern ourselves, just ourselves better and not interfering with each other so much uh, from institution to institution. Um, from century to century, you know, we, we just keep spinning our wheels essentially and not fighting the kinds of fights that we should, which is, you know, should we even, I've been hammering away at this forever and ever, you know me, should we even have this constitutional system when only about, what was it, 6% of people ever voted in favor of the thing in the first place? Whose constitution is it? You know, uh, why, why do we have any any system of government set up like this? Why do we have such a one massive gigantic country? Really fundamental type questions, uh, let alone all the complicated cultural and social questions that surround us today. We we can't govern this kind of massive world with these old lumbering ancient institutions that live on thanks to mythology and lies. Anthony Kamegna is America's leading, if not only, expert on the 19th century American Locofoco movement. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 